0: Hello and welcome to my inspiration lab on Jengi your life. I'm Ramneek. And I'm Sophie, and we'll be your host for today's podcast episode. We are the co-founders of My Inspiration Lab, and we are on a mission to inspire and engender your life. What does this mean? Well, Sophie and I have a passion for learning, inspiring, and empowering others to grow, as well as living with purpose and intent. We believe simplicity in life is key, and our aim with this podcast is to inspire you to implement things easily into your life, so you can create a strong foundation no matter what life throws at you.
1: We believe in the power of storytelling and we will be bringing you, our listeners, a number of episodes featuring some fantastic individuals who will talk to us about a whole host of different topics that will un your life. No nonsense, straight
0: talking and inspiring. Today we are talking about mindset with Paul Spackman. Paul is the founder of Mountain Mindset and took the leap out of corporate life to move out of the UK and to follow his own path. Paul has taken his vast experience of military and business leadership, developed on operations as an officer in the British Army, which he fine tuned in corporate business and combined them with his love of the outdoors and the mountains to provide a unique business consultancy service based in the inspirational French Alps. In this exciting podcast, he shares his life journey with us from his days in the British Army through to today and gives us his view on how you can take action on the things you want to do and be. In this
1: episode, we touch on things like fear of the unknown and learning what you've already learned, the importance of having a plan and taking a leading role in your life rather than having life happen to you. What's really interesting is that Paul uses the mountains as his backdrop and you'll also hear that because that's where he's based today. The mountains are his inspiration to help people move in the right direction
0: in their lives, and he talks us through this with some great stories. So if you're feeling stuck or hesitant to really live life to the full and realise your potential, this episode is great for you. Paul shares some amazing stories in this episode, and he was so down to earth.
1: We think you're going to be really inspired by this, and we can't wait for you to listen. So we will give you now
0: Paul Spackman. Enjoy!
1: Paul, we're absolutely delighted to have you on our podcast for our first series. Ever since we first connected, both family and I have been really excited to hear more about what a fantastic career and, and leadership journey and, and all the learnings that you've had from it. So uh, we're, we're just going to go straight in. We'd love to hear more about that and share with our listen- listeners more about your three main leadership journeys and, and what you've taken from them. We'd love to hear more.
2: Yeah, no worries. I, I'm really, really pleased to be here, and thanks for having me. I guess the place to start would be when i joined the army was the start of my my career i joined and went to sandhurst when i was 19 years old um and was a sort of very young slightly frightened officer cadet walking into those big doors of old college at sandhurst um but essentially I, i ended up doing about 10 years in the in the british infantry which um resulted in me going all over the world doing all sorts of interesting operational things where i had bags of opportunity to practice my own leadership and to really define my own style as an adult. You know, my, my de- defining years, for want of a better word, were um, were spent either in Northern Ireland, Iraq or Afghanistan on operations or in between those things, training for those operations. And then in the latter years of my military career, in the last sort of two years, I was then training young officers and um, young non-commissioned officers, kind of team leaders and, and group leaders, to prepare prepare them for leadership roles in the British Army as well, so um, it kind of set up the uh, set up the, my my uh, my career through um, having to be thrown into leadership right at the beginning. Um, my my next journey from there on, my, my second leadership journey, if you like, was I left the army and I joined the defence sector as a civilian, which was absolutely terrifying, probably more terrifying than arriving at Sandhurst, having left this institution with this enormous bubble around me of uh, of things like uh, accommodation and food there and then learning how to uh how to get that squared away <laughs> myself as a civilian in my own apartment um I'd do things like pay council tax was a real surprise you do not do that in the army you get something called cash in lieu of tax and so one day this ridiculous letter arrived on my table and i sort of said uh, to my now wife, then girlfriend, this letter. I want me to pay over a thousand pounds in some sort of tax, and she said, "Well, you no, know, everybody pays that." You, you have it. So there's quite a quite a lesson in life um, in my thirties, bizarrely. Um, but in the defence sector, I was really lucky because I I kind of left the army because I didn't want to be in the army anymore. Uh, joined the defence sector, and I was running major projects for uh, on behalf of the Ministry of Defence in uh, in security and information assurance and Physical physical security and firearms to the police and things like that. And so the the leadership style I had to develop for my second journey, which was about six years, seven years in the defence sector, was more influencing, more um, leading through. Uh, I suppose influence influencing other people, other groups. I had very little in the way of a direct uh, set of leadership uh, uh, or set of subordinates, uh, one of a better word or or, um, or employees. Everything I did was through. Managing small teams who didn't work for me, but I had to. And um, I was really lucky. I did a number of things with the Ministry of Defence Police, where helping them um, develop new weapon systems and um, learn how to do kind of SWAT tactics in counter-terrorism and various other things. And and uh, and I think I learned as much in that sort of five or six years in defence sector as I probably learned in the military. It was more about undoing my leadership style to a certain extent to fit the civilian world and. And from, from those immediate lessons, I realized that there was probably going to come a point in this second journey where I was going to want to make a change. And so I, having learned from what had happened in the military, which was get to a point where I no longer enjoyed it, I'd done too much in the way of operations, basically, um, I decided to start to set the conditions for what may or may not be a plan B um, post this, that current role. And so I did my MBA, um, I did it part-time, funny story my boss at the time turned around and said paul you're the young bloke in the office um i want the team to go and do some training and the people who were in the security team were all um they're all semi-retired military people who had done a full military career um and were um sort of um very experienced and a lot of them were, were a little bit um i don't know maybe afraid of training i don't know and so I went around and said, we've got, got this budget, we're going to do some training, and it's going to be great. And not a single person took it up. So okay, we've got this money, I wonder if I can get myself an MBA. So I went back to the boss and said, look, no one wants to do any training, I'm really sorry. I would love to do an MBA. And he said, well, if you can get a place at a decent university, we'll pay for the MBA, but you've got to pay for all your travel subsistence. And so I said, yeah, no worries. But here's my offer at Warwick University, because I went into the exams about four weeks ago when you first gave me this job job of finding out for training. And my nan lives at the back of the university, so I'm going to go and stay with her. There I was, uh, ready to go and do my MBA. And I did it part-time alongside my work, and it it gave me an opportunity to think about the world in a really different way. Anyway, a few years later, I ended up um, uh, as a chief of staff to the CEO of Badcock International Marine Sector, where I learned host of things from the kind of corporate c-suite and how major FTSE 100, FTSE 250 companies work and there came a point in that role where I was no longer enjoying myself. I had a week where I flew basically around the world uh, in the middle of a a redundancy program which I was part of the implementation team for and um, it was exhausting and I, I really realized that I was not cut out for the negative side of the corporate world. I didn't enjoy it at all. I met myself coming backwards as I flew back from Vancouver on the Friday or the Saturday morning, having sort of flown pretty much all the way around the world, including Oman, you know, various other countries, and realized I needed to change it up. But luckily this time I had a bit of a plan. I knew I wanted to be in the mountains. I'll talk about that in a moment. I knew I wanted to carry on doing some sort of leadership role, I had this kind of dream that I wanted to be a ski instructor, cruising through the snow and everything else. And I, I, I actually spoke to a coach at the time and, and got a little bit of advice. And um, he said, for God's sake, Paul, do not waste your CV. Yeah, great. Go out and enjoy the mountains, but don't just become a ski instructor. You've got all this experience. Make sure you use it. So I went away and thought about that long and hard and came up with the idea for my Now Company, which is called Mountain Mindset and essentially I took all of the things I learned during military and, and through my civilian career and also some things that I learned from my wife who's a doctor in the NHS and has had an incredible 18 months of leading a COVID um, response in Hampshire and we put all those things together and created mountain mindset and we have now moved to France and I live in the French Alps and now I'm living I think what I wanted to do 20 years ago and I'm enjoying the mountains. I'm enjoying being outside. I now do mountain guiding, expedition guiding, and I'm sort of living my best life, I suppose, but it's taken me some time to get here. It's amazing. What a
0: career you've had. I guess there's so much in that in terms of what you said and the journey that you've gone through. And one of the things that was that that first 10 years in inventory set you up for leadership. And then in your kind of second role in defence, you had to unlearn some of that. And I'd quite like to unpack that in terms of, you know, if if people are listening and they're in that first 10 years of their career and they're learning all about leadership and management and building their career, what what are the sorts of things that that you took away from that first 10 years that really set you up in terms of your career that you didn't unlearn that you think is probably worth sharing with our listeners?
2: The army, particularly, in the military generally, are brilliant at training people because they're all about training you to be able to respond so when when the chips are down you're not really thinking about it you're just doing it and whether whether that's the drills and the skills needed to you know fire your rifle through to the the skills needed to lead a group of people in some very difficult circumstances and also lead those people in some amazing places and amazing times as well they're very good at it and what i learned from that was that if you want to get good at something you've got to practice it so if it's if it's leadership won't always come naturally sometimes you need to do a bit of training the the army has uh very specific training courses for leadership depending on the role you're doing so you go to sandhurst for a whole year you're taught about you're taught about how to be a soldier first of all how to fold you you know fold your, your blankets and put your clothes away and all those sorts of things but you're also taught about leadership you're exposed to examples of good and bad leadership from previous wars or battles or operations and that helps you then pick the things that you want to either improve or build on based on your own experiences. So the thing I learned from the army was that there's always a way to improve your leadership style and it doesn't always have to be the same style for the for every situation. You need to be able to understand how to how to flex. And so what I didn't unlearn when I left the army or what I what I maintained when I left the army is, is a couple of key things, I suppose, looking after people. So something that you use in the military, well, the army particularly, refers to something called serve to lead. And it's all about service leadership. It's about looking after people, understanding them in order to lead them as best you can. And I've maintained that sort of ethos through my, uh, my entire career. And I, and I think if I was advising somebody as they're defining their leadership style now, it would be seek out role models seek out styles that you really like but equally find the stuff that you dislike and notice it and really understand what it is you dislike about that style of leadership and then try and work out how you would learn not to do that yourself so you kind of build the good and the bad and and notice when to avoid the bad stuff
0: that's a really good point i always say to my kids you know you're always going to suck at something new and it, it it takes practice they'll come back from a competitive swimming kind of lesson first lesson and they're like i was the slowest out of the whole group but the more you practice the quicker you're going to get and i think that's, that's such a good point around observing behaviors and seeking out role models and also noticing where it doesn't work quite as well in terms of mountains paul you mentioned mountains you're obviously you've got a lovely surrounding there very jealous
2: Yeah, I'm sorry about the bells. I mean, it's sat on my balcony, um, actually, at the foot of Mont Blanc, and the church has just started sounding all its bells, and it's pouring with rain, so it probably sounds Um, like a white noise in the background. I'm sorry about that.
1: What our listeners probably can't see is Paul's got a lovely backdrop with the river and the
0: mountains behind him. To be honest, it's just making me want to book a ski trip. Really interested to hear, Paul, around your resonance with mountains. And I think it's got a very clear alignment to what Sophie and I are trying to achieve with this podcast, which is very much around inspiring and empowering others, but almost kind of unjenglinging your life, having, you know, core stability within your life, Um, but then building on that so that you can live more and, um, I guess, achieve more um and be happier in in life so really really want to explore kind of the mountain um uh, ethos you've got um and what that yeah. means yeah
2: yeah of course mm. I, mm. i mean i have i've loved the mountains for as long as i can remember and um one of the things you do when you finish sandhurst is you go and do a course to learn how to do some sort of adventure training and one of the things i did was my mountain leader qualification so i was 20 learning how to lead in the mountains and I did some rock climbing training and various other things. And the army then probably sent me to the desert where most of those qualifications were absolutely useless. But even as a kid, you know, I'd always been interested in the outdoors. Like my dad had kind of always sort of stood me on the side of the hill and said, look at the trees, look at the mountains, it's really important in the world. And we've got to make sure we look after trees. And I had a real, uh, an upbringing where the outdoors and the natural world was really important to us as a family. Not in the same context, I think, as it is today. But more in a kind of my dad obviously knew that being, and my mum both knew that being outside was going to be really important for my life. And and so, you know, when we went on holiday, I have vivid memories of, of mum and dad taking us to places where we would go out to beaches or we'd go walking in the hills or we'd go conquer picking or whatever it may be. When I joined the army, there were occasional holidays where we'd go to the mountains. and Like I said, my mountain leadership training. And one, of, one of the things I would really advocate to the listeners is is really try and understand and notice the things that make you feel good and the things that make you feel bad. And I noticed that I am happy, I mean, genuinely happy to the core when I'm in the mountains and when I'm surrounded by mountains. And, and it took me quite a while to realize that, I think. The, the defining moment for me was Lucy, my wife and I, we were, we were climbing the Eiger. This was just before, if you like, that big decision to leave the defence sector. And we were we we're on this kind of, we were, I think we might have been in the car park or something, and it was pouring with rain, and we were trying to work out what the route was going to be, and we were talking to the guides, and, and I just had this kind of, this realisation that I wanted to be in the mountains. I was loving being in the mountains, even though that day was a rubbish day from a mountaineering perspective, because it was chucking it down with rain, and the plan was off, and we were going to have to do it the next day, and I just realised that. This was where I was happy. So I now need to create a situation where I can do the things I enjoy doing and something that will earn money to pay the bills in an environment where the mountains are. And the the mountains for me are this kind of ever-present thing that doesn't really change. They change through the year and they change in terms of the seasons and that's amazing but they're always there. You know, I wake up in the morning, I look at my window, that mountain not long, is always there. And it gives me some real stability in my life. And then from the mountains, I think there is a whole other perspective in the world. You look down at where you've come from. You can really on a journey into the mountains. You can look backwards and see where you've been. And you have this sense of achievement at the top. I think it just puts all of those sort of things that make me feel good into really, really Dark contrast, and, and I'm able to realise those things in a, in a very real way that that makes me feel feel good, I guess. And, and I and I hope my clients, when they come and do stuff with us in the mountains, it makes them feel good. Well, I, well, I know it makes me feel good. They tell me that.
0: I think that sense of space, isn't it? it, it, it is it also important. I know it's not quite the same, but you know, I definitely feel like that when I'm walking in our forest next to our house. That it's not as grand as as a mountain, but actually, I I need it for my own kind of mindfulness you know, if I don't go for a walk in the forest every day, I feel like my mind is just blown. And the space that that the the walk and the forest gives you, like a mountain, I guess, in many ways, you're talking about being able to see vastly kind of where you're going, but also where you've come from and everything behind you. I think that's the same for me when I go into the forest, you know, um, I just get, I'm able to process things and, just take some time out, and it, it just frees your mind a little bit. That sense of space all around you.
2: There is a, a well-documented fact that um, around waterfalls, mountains, beaches, around the sea, and in open spaces, there's something to do with the ions yeah. in the air that changes how your endorphins are generated, and therefore you, you tend to be of a more positive mindset. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if you're in a positive mindset, I find I can think through a problem much more clearly. And I can come up with very positive solutions to an issue rather than dwelling on the negatives and problems. And so I think there is some real, uh, there is some science. I think it it probably deserves a little bit more exploration generally, whether it's the forest or the mountains. I think there's definitely space for the outdoors for everyone.
1: I think it's, as you said, it's finding that place or thing that makes you happy to accord. And that then gives you the perspective to put, you know, if you're facing a an issue or something challenging that day or that period of time, you can. It just gives you perspective, doesn't it, to think differently. When you've got teams of people that come out and, and work with you in the mountains, do they go on that journey as well? That, that must be amazing to
2: to support people with that. Yeah, I mean, some of some of the stories bring a little bit of a tear to my eye, to honestly, because when you watch people achieve things, it's heartwarming. It really is. I mean, there are you know there are teams that we've had that have been out doing leadership training. And they've come as a group of, say, individuals from a company, and they might have met each other at a social or in the office occasionally, but actually they don't work together. You know, they might be the, the identified as the company's future leaders. And they turn up and all really kind of quiet and a bit cagey around each other, and they don't really know each other very well. And by the end of it, by the end of the experience in the mountains, they've had to share something very real. A real tangible experience of going in the mountains, helping each other getting soaking wet because it rains or getting really hot because it's really sunny but they all got to the summit or they all got to the place where they're going to be and i think when i see people and i, I, I again i get quite good feedback or as a company we get good feedback to say that not only did they learn something from a leadership perspective when they're doing leadership courses but actually there was more to it than that they, they had a more they had more opportunity to self-reflect so I know that that happens. And then on the private guiding side of stuff that I do, the sort of expeditions, it's all about the whole role that I think I have as a guide in the mountains is to get, help people achieve their dream. If, you know, some people climbing to Everest Base Camp or hiking to Everest Base Camp or hiking around the Tour de Mont Blanc, you know, that's their yeah. life's goal. They want to be able to achieve that. And to be in a position where you can help them achieve that is, a, is really important. And it, and it brings me back to that kind of service leadership. It's not about leading and just being the kind of at the front all the time. It's about serving somebody to make them be better, to make them achieve something. That's what leadership is about. And I think that being a guide in the mountains takes the best bits of that and helps you achieve those things. It helps other people achieve their dreams as well.
0: Helping someone to achieve their goal. You're such in a position, aren't you, Paul, in a position of privilege to be able to do that for other people and I know that when I uh, climbed the Great Wall of China, gosh, it must have been 14 years ago, and then I did the awesome. the 24 Peaks in the Lake District. I think I learned more from others while you're doing that. You're with a group of strangers that you've never met. Everyone's there with their own different stories as well. So, yeah, I, I agree. You have lots of moments of self-reflection, but you also... Hear other people's stories, what they're doing, and you see yourself in other people's stories as well, don't you? And learning from each other. And I don't, I don't know about, you know, the people that you work with in the mountains, but I had to carry a massive backpack on both of these trips. And you sometimes, you just can't, you're just so tired, you can't reach for the bottle. You know, others will come <laughs> to your rescue and you kind of just, you work as part of this like wonderful team of people that have come there for all different reasons and it's just an amazing experience really when you when you can do that and achieve your goal with others it's interesting you
2: talk about (laughs) when people come with their own objectives into the mountains and and people do i mean i've met some unbelievable people on some of these trips who "Ah, this is a i suppose this is a a a negative trait of the human being you have a you have an immediate perception of somebody who turns up and you think oh goodness this is going to be a nightmare and then by the end of it, you're like, actually, wow, this is an incredible story that this person has. I and mean, we had a chat, but he had never really hiked anywhere, ever. And his first thing he did was to climb Kilimanjaro. And I remember the first day going through the kit that he would need and stuff he didn't need and things like that. And he was he was really, I don't think he was frightened, but he was definitely nervous. He definitely was worried about whether he would get to the top and anything else. And actually watching that progress from being at the base camp not really having a clue what he needed or what he needed to do and then being able to help him and guide him through the process of learning the things that he needed to learn from little things like when to wear the certain types of clothing how to layer up when to put waterproof on when to take them off all those little basic things meant he got to the summit and then he came back down again and he was safe and had a great time and and he was he actually came back out actually and uh, and joined us on a course and you know and i stayed in touch with him and he's it, that for me was a really heartening experience to take somebody from almost zero to heroes. It's a fabulous position to be in.
0: What a privilege. You touched on something earlier there, Paul, around that initial fear of doing something new. I'd really like to kind of delve a little bit deeper into that because I can, I can really resonate with what you've just said. And I don't necessarily have the fear of actually signing up for something new. But when I get there, I'm like, what have I signed up for? You know, <laughs> and that's it. I get a mental block I struggle for the first bit of it, and then then I'm fine. So let's talk a little bit about that, because there's there's obviously a number of people that don't sign up for these things because of that initial fear. And then there's people that probably sign up for these things, and it's brand new to them. And how do they conquer that fear in the moment?
2: When I joined the army, I thought I was going to be there for my whole life. When I came to the point where I realised I didn't want to do it anymore, I had no idea what the world held for me outside it was definitely an element of fear it took me a while to really get over that and then you have to you have to physically sign off the army you have to hand in a letter of resignation give a year's notice the thing with the military is really once you've given that notice it's you're kind of it's not really any way back i mean there is if you need to but once you've started that process you, you're on your way and 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 you need a year I mean, you, if there are any veterans or, or or soldiers or sailors, people, whatever organization you're in, if you're in a large institution, you're thinking about leaving, you need the year. You really do. It comes up so quickly. But I was frightened. So when I actually signed off, I kind of then, scra- I, if I'm honest, I scrabbled about to find a job. I applied on a website or something similar to try and find a civilian job. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And this guy rang me up, a guy called Jean-Claude Hedlouin, lovely guy. He he actually got me my first job. And he rang me up. He was a recruitment consultant. He said, Paul, you've applied for one job three times. You've, you've sent your CV for the same thing three or four times. And, and you're not an engineer. What, what are you do?" So he and I had a chat. And then he, he said, well, look, you know, there Hampstead to be this company that are hiring people. Why don't you go and have a chat? And luckily for me, and I do, there was a lot of luck when I left the army for me. And, and I'm, I'll talk about that a bit in a minute. But... The, the guy who was interviewing me was ex-military. The person that worked for him was going to be my immediate boss was ex-military and half the team were ex-military. So when I st- stood there and presented to them in what was definitely military jargon when I look back at it, it was fine. You know, they were like, yeah, great, great interview. When would you like to start? And I got off of the job kind of on the way home. And I know that so many people aren't in that fortunate position. So when I left the defence sector and I went to set up my own company, I mean, that was one of the biggest decisions of my life and it was terrifying so i was going to go from this great job with a great salary to cutting around with a flashy red car i was i'm very lucky again in that lucy was, is a doctor and so we had some stability there but i was suddenly about to take this leap uh, into the complete unknown and it was frightening but the thing that helped me overcome that fear was the fact that i had kind of thought about what success looked like and I'd, in my mind roadmapped roughly what i needed to do to get there so I, I knew I had my MBA, and I think I actually probably started this plan before I knew I needed it. And I did my MBA, so I had some credibility beyond my military experience. I had some real credibility in civ- civilian strengths. So, like I said, I joined the army at 19. I didn't have a degree. I, I scraped through my GCSEs and my A levels. Well, I actually failed one of my A levels. We won't talk about. I, I, ironically, I failed business <laughs> studies i <laughs> then got a, a, a mirror in my mba and <laughs> so now again, you've got your own
1: business <laughs> yeah, exactly. it just goes to show
2: that, you know what happens at school and, and again for those in their early earlier formative years it really don't assume that what happens in your 20s is what's gonna happen in your 40s because yeah true. it's been a totally opposite for me and so i think to overcome that fear i i came up with a plan a number of steps i needed to do i had an end state that i was aiming for but I also knew that that plan would probably have to change. My military experience had told me that any plan you come up with tends to fail at some point and you have to change. If you think that setting up a, a business on day one, what you think it's going to be almost certainly isn't what it is three years later. And so I'd learned that from my military time. I'd learned that through my MBA as well and from doing the things I've done in, in, um, in large corporations. And so I had a plan and I accepted that some parts that would fail and I accepted that it was going to be frightening and that I just needed to go through the steps in order to achieve success. And those steps were varying from making sure I had enough money. I had to massively reduce my overhead. I lived, I lived the lifestyle of a corporate kind of executive. I, like I say, we had posh holidays, and drove around in a posh car, and we had a big house, and blah, 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 and all those things. And I paid for a gym membership and got rid of all of that. And it, and that was both a psychological and a, uh, a tangible set of actions that i did to sort of say right i i've reduced my overhead i've got rid of a load of stuff that i don't need and everybody sort of said oh he's really doing this you know this he's gone from running around in this snazzy motor to cutting around a slightly battered van um you know those those actions were both a positive signal for me to say i'm doing this and wow these little actions have all been a success so i can keep going and actually no one's looking at me like i'm an idiot people are a bit jealous and it seems to be working so so have a plan Go with it, but don't stick to it in such a rigid way that it, that you that if you fail at a small hurdle, you can't then change something.
0: And in that example, Paul, what triggered it? So, it, was there a trigger that happened in in terms of right? I'm going to do this now because I think, people well, listening to your story, I'm sure there's people that you know do want to make lots of life changes, but are getting stuck because actually it means completely changing their life right and it's a it's a big decision so how you know what made you make that major life decision was there a trigger and how do people kind of get unstuck a little bit so that they can start making these decisions and taking action
2: that's a really good question Because I don't think there's ever, I don't think there was one single trigger. I think the first trigger, if you like, was when I decided I didn't want to be in the army. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew it was something different. And because I was running away from the army, I don't mean that in a sort of traditional running away, I was leaving something without a plan to go to. Whereas I think it's much better to have something that you run towards. So whether it's a job or a a relationship or a sport you're doing, it doesn't really matter. You find yourself in a position where you're thinking, I need to get away from to run away from it just take a pause and try and understand what you're going to run towards because if you just run away you run into open space and suddenly you you're left with a kind of cliff edge in that what you had you have left and now you need to find something and and in that open space you'll end up grabbing the first thing that facilitates probably some of your more security and life living need I think you have to run towards something
1: I think it's just just life in general as well I always talk about we have different chapters in our life and as you say whether that's like you know your work or your relationships or or different hobbies or things you do you you do have different chapters and I think it can be really scary when you're moving from one chapter into the next even even if you have got a plan as you say like when you adjusted your your lifestyle and how you were living that must have been scary because you were like hang on this is so different to what I'm used to for so many years often making that decision or that you know i'm going to go do this is is sometimes easier it's it's then committing to that action and taking that action is is then often the harder part isn't it
2: yeah i think it is but back to the triggers There there may be a point where you decide i don't want to be in this job or i don't want to be doing this thing but i i'd be surprised for me anyway for me there certainly wasn't a single trigger i mean the final draw if you like or the final point where i made the decision. Like I said, was in a car park about to go and climb the Argent. I said, I just, I now know this is absolutely what I need to do. It was kind of really clear to me. And once it was clear, in terms of that there must be something, there has to be a change, whatever that change is, then it was time to start to plan the action. I, I didn't make the decision, you know, have that final decision and then jump out. There's months before I then eventually handed my notice in. And it probably been about a year beforehand that I was setting the conditions for success. Yeah, I think there are multiple triggers. And back to that, knowing yourself, I think knowing when those triggers are happening, if there are things that are happening that making you look out the window at work and you're saying, I really wish I was doing this other thing. And if that's the thing that makes you happy and it has to pay the bills and it has to work with your life and it has to work with the family, there are definitely compromises. If you're wrong. And yeah, you, you've got to do it. I mean... For me, COVID was, like everybody, it was a massive spanner. We literally just got going as a company. We had a, we had a pipeline that was going to be able to pay me a salary for the first time in 18 months. It fell over in, in the space of three days. That was the second most terrifying part of running, running my own business. Because if I'd have been in a job, I probably could have been furloughed. But I made it work.
1: Just on that point in terms of obviously the lockdowns that we've all been on, I think back to earlier when we are talking about people finding their happy place and really being able to connect with what they want and what's important and what mm-hmm. makes them happy in life. I, I know from talking to lots of people, we've had this conversation before, I Emily, mean, but mm-hmm. people have, have had that time to reflect and connect more on that and, and mm-hmm. then probably made some of those um, decisions, if you like, in terms of actually this is what I need to go and do in my life or this is the change I need to make. But I also know that lots of people probably might have made that decision and then actually now we're starting to get back to normal and just life is getting back to how it used to be they probably then like backtracked a bit and go, oh actually maybe I won't do that just yet or maybe that was just a lockdown crazy idea I had so what advice would you have for those people that probably know in their hearts that they need to make a change in some area of their life but haven't fully been able to commit or drive to get that action just yet?
2: Yeah, lockdown definitely provided everybody with a moment to reflect. Well, for me, the fact that I'm re-pursuing the same thing afterwards and I know it's what I want to do, having had 18 months to reflect, it's reinforced my, my decision-making. You know, I, I now know that this is what I've, I want to do and this is what I'm going to continue to do. For those who, are, who have perhaps had the last 18 months to really reflect on what they want to do and, and are worried or, or, or struggling to make that choice, I would say that we're only just seeing the start of the world changing. And if you're sitting there and you've just started going back into the office and it's filling you with dread and you're back on the train and thinking, here I am again, or whatever or whatever that is, that needs to be an alarm signal but for that person as an individual. And that's that recognizing when things aren't right and recognizing when things are right, then you need to find a way. That might be that that way doesn't come around for six months, 18 months, whatever it is. Start planning. Start thinking about, okay, if I – If I feel good doing mountain guiding, as an example, because that's my easiest one to reach to, then what do you need to do to do that? Well, I need to do my qualifications. I need to learn about the mountains. I need to understand the industry. I need to do whatever and come up with a plan and come up with a a way that's going to get you from that job you're in now to the job you want in the future. Don't just apply randomly for those jobs particularly if it's a change in your career if you want to go from being a architect to being a financial consultant you know there, there's a huge there's a huge gap you've got to bridge in the same way that if you're running a project you don't, it doesn't just happen a house doesn't just build there's lots of other small tasks that have to be achieved and the same true for mountain journeys you know we whether it's you know, from getting on the um, getting out of the bus in the morning to, to getting to the summit there's a million and one things that got to go right between the start of the journey and the end of it have a plan, have some contingencies around that and start to work it up now. But most of all, if you are feeling that you want to do something different and you can feel it in yourself that what you're doing today is wrong, is wrong for your happiness, find a way to do the thing that makes you happy because we we have a very short period of time on this world. If we spend it just earning money and doing nine to five and saying, I'm going to wait till next year, it, it'll be fine when, you'll just it'll just never come. And it's easy for me to say, having made that leap, it was hard for me to make the leap. I had to do a lot of things that I didn't really want to do. I had to make a lot of mistakes. But now I'm here. I'm so glad that I pursued it and I stuck to my plan. And I can pay the bills. The world hasn't fallen over. And no one really cares that I left the companies that I was in. To, you know, if there's this kind of, oh, company won't manage without me. It absolutely will. You know, uh, it, it absolutely will manage without you. And you will be fine. You will be absolutely fine. And whatever you're afraid of today definitely isn't going to be as bad as it as you think when you get there.
1: Well, you're just saying that. I'm just thinking about, you know, naturally, I I listen a lot to the advice from people. So when I'm probably going through one of those decision moments myself, I'm thinking, right, who are the people that are going to support me with this decision? And then probably who are the people that you know, maybe sit on the fence or challenge it? And I was reflecting because earlier you said that, you know, you saw a coach who was like, don't waste your CV and don't just go and ski guide. And it, I'd just love to know sort of, it sounds like you made that decision yourself and you got to the point you needed to make a change and then you probably sought the, the advice of others. But I'd love to just know a bit more about that and how much did you sort of pay attention to people's advice or, and probably shut out people's opinions?
2: Advice and opinion can be the same, same thing a lot of the time. So find, yeah, back to that positive and negative thing, find the good and the bad. I, I rang a lady up out of the blue. I, I Googled who lives in Chamonix and runs a mountaineering company. <laughs> uh, and, and I, rang this lady up she, she and I now work together quite a lot good friend um incredibly capable woman actually um I think she was the first Brit or maybe the first person to ski off Manis, Mount Manaslu which is a 8,000 meter peak but uh, incredible and I rang her and said you do some stuff that I want to do can I come and have chat to you about it can we meet up and have a coffee and I know she was I know was talking to her she was um she was a bit like who is this guy okay fine let's have a brew we got chatting and and she gave me some advice and I took some of that and I rang another couple of people and got some advice from them and I spoke to my colleagues at the time where I worked and some of them were like, oh God, I wish I had the balls to go do that. You know? And some of them were like, oh my goodness, you're going to throw everything away and it's going to be a disaster. And and I took all of that advice, I took all of those things, whether they were positive or negative, um, opinions and facts and I researched it and I took all of that stuff and Helped it guide my decision making, and so the the point you make about the coach, his point wasn't don't go and be don't go be in the mountains. His point was, go and be in the mountains, absolutely. But I, his his view was that if I just went and became a ski instructor, I would enjoy that for about two or three years. He said, but then you you'll get bored because your mind is much. Uh, you're, you're you're. I'm also motivated by large problems and doing business and things like that. He said, if you just Get on the ski slopes for four hours a day and you'll get bored and, and that you'll want to do something else afterwards. So yeah, I think take all of the advice, boil it all down, and if at the end of it you still want to do your own thing and go for it. And and then seek out the people who are going to positively encourage you to do it. Always good to have a little bit of a, a self-check with with people. My wife is very good at that for me. She keeps me in line. But I think then pursue the thing you want to do and, and use the people who are going to help you get there.
0: I always say it's important to have a little tribe around you that, you know, that you can call on that always has your back and sharing your dreams with them, right? Because they'll hold you to account to your plan. I think that's a really important step as well. And just going back, Paul, to the planning phase. So, Mm. you know, where where we were talking about earlier, where someone is wanting to do something different. And I I guess what I'm taking from what you've just said is actually put pen to paper, make Mm. a list of everything that you need to do and work towards to get there. But one of the things that, you know, you have talked about throughout is defining what success looks like. So when we're, when we're planning and we're trying to work out all the steps that we need to take, how do people do that in terms of defining what success looks like for them? What's the best way of going about that? Because I guess if you can visualize it, Right from the outset, you're more likely to succeed.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and, I, and I think right at the start, if for example you're in a job or in a position where you think I'm just not happy in this thing I'm in, whatever it is, the first step is to work out okay, what does happiness look like. What what is it? What is the thing that makes you happy? So back to that point I made around noticing when you feel good. If you can notice those things, then you can start to define what, what happiness or, or what good feels like. And to define success is quite difficult, I think. It was difficult for me, you know, if if someone had said, what is success like for mountain mindset? And I probably would have said something like, in the mountains all the time, taking people on leadership courses, doing some guiding, back-to-back summer, hiking around Mont Blanc, and, that would have been great. The reality is that I had to also do some really boring admin, tons (laughs) of it, because setting a business up takes time. Getting to know what those tasks are, so Hmm. what are the different things to do, and how do they fit with each other so what do i need to do first there's no point in me for example going and running after clients if i haven't registered the business there's no point in me trying to pitch myself as a guide to a, a mountaineering company if i haven't registered on the french system doing the research to understand how the tasks sequentially fit together in order to build that success defining success is a really personal thing success might be making millions and millions of pounds some people it, it depends on what motivates you. But I, you've got to know what that is. That's the that's the trick. Know what it is that motivates you and gets you up and go and pursue that.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really important point because going back to Sophie's comment around and, and your response to her question around taking the advice of others, what I have found is that often when I get advice from others, it's in their own version of success. Yes. And, and I actually think that defining what success looks like for you is such a crucial step because you don't want to live the life of another person or someone that you admire. You want to live your own life. And defining what that looks like for you is so important as part of the flat planning phase.
2: Yeah, I think you know, if you'd have asked me when I was 18 what does success looks like, look mm. like for me, mm. I'd have said a lifetime in the army, traveling around the world windsurfing and skiing and doing all these amazing things. That was what success looked like for me when I was 18. Age of 30, it was different. And then at 40 it was different again. And and I think they mo- it doesn't matter if it changes. Don't be afraid that change. And don't worry about what people will think of you. If you if there are people out there who are saying to you, Oh my God, that's a ridiculous idea, you'll never be able to do that. They're not they're not the right people to have around you if you want to achieve that dream. They're useful in that they can help you sense check a plan. So that you're not just going out to be a ski instructor and realize that actually it pays nothing and you have to live in a van all your life in the freezing cold in the winter in a car park in chamonix that, that's great when you're 25 it's not great when you're 20, <laughs> um, and you've got three kids so it's useful to have that sense check but but also if you've got a dream you've got to find a way to to do it and it, and it isn't easy i'm not i'm not trying to say yeah, live your dreams it will be amazing it's difficult. It's difficult to do it.
0: Yeah, and be prepared, I guess, to make mistakes as well along the way, right? So, <laughs> it's not going to plan.
2: Uh, yeah. so the mistakes I've made in setting up my own business. If I could do it all again, I'd probably, I'd have probably, a, made a lot more money, uh, and b, given myself a lot less stress. Mistakes are just part of the journey. You have to learn from them and move on.
0: I think linked to that, that you've mentioned a couple of times actually, is. When you talked about kind of, you know, moving on from the 10 years that you did with inventory and kind of going into defence, you talked about undoing your leadership style. And and then subsequently you've talked about unlearning some things. I'm just curious about how people go about unlearning. I th- I'm sensing it's quite a difficult process, but how do people unlearn and undo things?
2: Going <laughs> into context for this a bit. In the army, you know, on operations – there are times when you have to be very directive. You have to have a very directive leadership style. But it isn't, you know, I think there's a kind of this uh, view that in the army, you say something and it won't, does it? Well, that, that it, to a certain extent, that's true. But it isn't because you wear a rank or because you said, do this thing. It's because you spent five years with those people, training them, teaching them, working with them, sacrificing yourself to, to help them. Through this service style leadership you're able to be directed because you know how that directive approach will fall they know how to respond everybody kind of knows where they fit what i found when i went into a civilian job was that and, and even now actually myself not everybody really knows where they fit everybody worries about what everybody else thinks about each other everyone's nervous around what the client might do what the boss might do what your employees might do what the unions might do what the health and safety inspector might do and so you have to shift your leadership style around and so What I had to do was, I suppose, kind of unlearn or or, or adapt my leadership style. So I couldn't use this, a lot of the tools that I had in the military, because they worked in a really, really specific way in an environment where everybody knew what everyone was doing. And so I had to kind of take that and work out where it was best to, to apply that and where not to apply it. And then where I didn't apply it, I didn't have any other tools. So I had to go find them. How do I now... True leadership in this space. So when I say unlearn, I think it's more about working out what works where and when not to use it. And it might be that you just can't use a particular thing because there isn't an the environment to use it in and, and then you have to find a, a new way of doing things.
0: In terms of taking action, a shift, I guess, in terms of doing things for yourself and then doing things for others, where you identify kind of, you know, a, someone close, either in your family unit or a friend, who is struggling, who is wanting to take action, but is also not open to be helped by you or others. How, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you help someone kind of move forward with their lives? Is there a limit to what you can do? And it really needs to come from, from them, themselves? Or are there tools that you can use with other people to help them along the journey?
2: A lot of my peer group who left the army came to, have come to me over the years and said, you seem to have had a really successful exit by the military. What did you do? Well, okay, I can share that. But it's hard to take my context and, and mirror it onto somebody else. I think everybody is very individual and and if somebody doesn't want to do something can't you can't make them do it, I guess. If you know that somebody is unhappy in a, whether it's in their job or in their something in their life or relationship, whatever, I think it's important as particularly as family and friends to make an observation and you can say to people that i've noticed that at work you you just you never whenever we talk about work you're just never happy have you have you thought about changing up to something else and they might say oh i had this ridiculous idea that i wanted to open my own company in the mountains and do leadership training i mean it's just a stupid idea i'm never going to do it someone might turn around and say man do you know what that's exactly what i did and it's great and they'll go really or if you can't provide that um positive support if you know people who can, then connect them. I mean, the, every bit of business that I've won over the years or, or job that I've got has been through connecting through people and just making as many connections, both in terms of people, but also from learning and reading stuff and watching videos about things. And then eventually some of those things hang together and, and provide an opportunity. And and so I think if you are, if you have a family or, or a family member or friend who, who needs that support, doesn't know they need it, you can't force it upon them, but provide as many opportunities as possible to allow them to see that they have either a great idea that they can turn into something or help them, just help them explore it. Help them explore whatever the negative or the positive thing that they're trying to deal with. It's, because it's, it's not easy if someone doesn't want to be helped. It's, it's hard. You just need to be there for them, really, I suppose, and, 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 set, and be prepared to set some conditions that they might then take on and move forward. So true.
0: Paul, I'm going to close the session now. This has been brilliant talking to you already. Let's close the session with a few questions that people can really take away with them. So let's start by the three things that you want our listeners to take away from today's conversation. In your mind, Paul, what would that be?
2: I would say always remember that the fear of change or the fear of the thing you're going to do next. That fear is always much worse than the actual thing. So if it's a new job or it's a, if it's climbing a new mountain or it's going on a course or whatever it is, and you think oh, this is going to be a nightmare. I haven't got the right stuff. I haven't got the right qualifications, whatever it is. It always feels much worse than your situation, particularly at night. If it wakes you up at night, it'll feel awful. When you get up in the morning, it'll feel better. It's always, it always feels and sounds much worse than it is, So when it comes to change. The second thing in, is about leadership. And if you're doing one thing as a leader, it's care for the people that work for you. And I mean, really care for them, not I want to make sure they're trained and they you know, health and safety. That's kind of standard. Like, find out about how many kids they've got and what their children's names where do they, Where do they come from? What, what sort of car do they drive? What do they do in the evenings when they get home? What, what really motivates them? What are the things that makes them get out of bed in the morning? What, why do they come to work? Is it because they love the job or is it because actually, you know, they've got a massive overhead, which is a sick parent that um, they need to support or lots of children or private school, whatever it is. Get to know them. Really care about them because it will pay dividends in the future because when you come back around in a different job or a different career and they've, you know, gone past you and they're now the CEO, they'll remember that and and hopefully it'll encourage them to care about people in the future as well. So that's the thing about leadership is really care for your people. And then the third thing would be try and either learn how to or at least notice how you feel about things. And I mean really notice it. If you go on holiday and you're doing something, you're like, I genuinely feel happy. I have not had that feeling or that worry or whatever it is. Try and distill what those things are and do more of them. And the things that make you feel rubbish and upset or frightened or bored or disengaged, really try and work out what it is about those things. Is it because the weather's bad or is it because it's the people you're with or is it because the place, the environment, whatever? Try and get to the bottom of it and then do less of that. And it, It's it's hard to do, but it's I think it's key.
0: I think on that last point, one of the tools that I've discovered recently is journaling because actually if you note it down in terms of what, you know, your reflections – even if it's once a week, it doesn't have to be every day, but even if it's once a week and you notice kind of, you know, what, what are you spending your time doing and what is making you feel good and what is making you feel not so good, actually journaling it and then looking back at that can really help you kind of make change and take action and do more of what you love, which is exactly what you're saying essentially, isn't it, Paul? So, exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah journaling is yeah. a great way to do it.
0: Well, we always finish our podcast asking a
1: few like really quick fire questions, so don't overthink. them. we just kind of go your, your first like and answer because it helps our listeners get to know you even better. And the first one, I don't think I could not
2: ask this, but what's your next adventure or goal or ambition that you're shooting for? So I have a, I would like to go and learn how to be a, a leader on Everest. So I've got this plan to go to Nepal. I've been to Nepal before. I'm planning to go again next year um to do a course to learn how to be a guide on on the big mountains there and lucy and i are going to do something similar and try and climb amadab that's our kind of next big mountain goal our next big business (laughs) goal is is trying to get our um our little business back on that back on that road back on the pipeline and getting our projects up and running and helping people again
1: yeah, that's brilliant. Amazing. I wish you all the luck mm. with the latter, mm-hmm. but equally with the first. I might see you on Everest because okay. I'm training to uh, <laughs> go up there next year myself. Yeah, in cool. space camp, though, not going right to the top. Talked a lot about mindset and finding that place that that helps you keep that positive mindset today. But do you have like I don't know a couple of words or like a mantra that you kind of say to yourself each day or every now and then just to like keep yourself on the right track?
2: No, no, I don't actually. I don't have a, a mantra. I don't think. The thing that keeps me on the right track, I just know that there are going to be times when I drop the ball. There are going to be times when I make mistakes and I fail. And I try and live my life in a position where I work as hard as I can to achieve the things I want to achieve. And I really focus on what it is that I need to do. I don't just do stuff for the sake of doing stuff. I think that's a waste of time. But I always know that at some point I will fail. And when it, when I do fail on that thing, whatever it is, it could be something really small like missing a meeting last week. Um right away through to uh, not getting to the summit of a mountain. Okay, turn around, go back, think about it again. Do I want to do that thing or is there a way I can do it differently? So just trying to recover from failure because I think we're all going to make mistakes.
1: Yeah, it's really mm-hmm. true. Well, thank you so, so much, Paul. It's been absolutely delightful to talk to you yeah, um, really pleased today. To talk to you, yeah, we've got so much from it and I think our listeners are going to really enjoy the conversation as well. We really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. As always, please do think about one or two things that you can take away and implement right now in your own lives. We'd love to hear what you thought of the episode, any comments and reflections that you've got. Please do leave us a review. Even one word helps so that we can
0: share and inspire more people to unjenga their life too. Please also reach out to us on our social media channels, the platforms that we are on and on our website at www.myinspirationlab.com. From all of us at My Inspiration Lab
2: team, thank you for listening. Until the next time.